15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Is that Shakespeare? Nope, it's Geico. Uh, yeah, 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 that's Shakespeare from one of his unpublished works. Oh, it be not for awakening. Nay, give it thou the berries. For 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. No, it's from Geico, because they help save people money. Well, I hate to break it to you, but Geico got it from Shakespeare. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Welcome to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel, and we are doing a series, uh, the last few uh, podcasts and ones coming up, um, on conviction review units. And last time, we had the pleasure of having State Attorney Andrew Warren on, who is the uh, founder of the unit. Uh, He is the State Attorney for uh, Hillsborough County, the 13th District. So today, um, we have invited Teresa Hall, who is the executive director of the unit, and she is going to tell us a little bit about her role and ultimately go into uh, a case that uh, was um, overturned by the unit. Welcome, Teresa, to Pursuing Justice. It's a pleasure to have you as my guest today. Oh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here and to be able to talk about the wonderful work we're doing here in Hillsborough County. Absolutely. You've been a public defender, a judge, a prosecutor, and an attorney for 19 years. When did you assume the role of director of this conviction review unit? The unit was being created in 2018, and I was hired to finish the creation, which was October of 2018, so right a little over two years now. Oh, just two years. And in those two years, um, did you have experience um, with a conviction integrity unit before beforehand, or was this very new for you? Uh, th- this was brand new for me. Uh, the, the good thing was I was able to take all of my experience from those three areas, and it really did fit in creating the conviction review unit. But I had no experience, and if you look across the state of Florida with the other units, none of them had experience either. They were all new into these positions. Mm. All right, so tell us a little bit about conviction review units or conviction integrity review units in general. Uh, Sure. Um, They began popping up around 2000, 2007, 2008. California and Texas first created a few of the units in their large uh, metropolitan areas, and they really took off then around 2014 when you started seeing more progressive prosecutors being elected into county and state positions. And they were created so that the prosecutors armed could review their own cases to make sure that their conviction was solid and if they're was something wrong with the conviction that they could seek to overturn it 
and that was a great criminal justice reform step that a lot of the progressive prosecutors across the United States began to take. So since 2014, there really have been a proliferation of conviction review units in larger metropolitan cities. Uh, I think now at, in the end of year 2020, uh, we have a think we're almost to 70 uh, oh. across the United States. Oh, I had no idea there were that many. That's incredible. Um, yes. Do you ever um, have an opportunity to talk to people in other conviction integrity units? Uh, absolutely. Uh, here in Florida, we now have five. Uh, there are 20 judicial circuits. We have five of the 20 have conviction review units. We meet as a group, uh, sometimes monthly, sometimes every couple of weeks, depending on what we have going on, so that we could collaborate, share documents, share experiences, uh, because we all are new within the positions, and the units in Florida have only been up and running for two years. But I am uh, working with Indianapolis to create their first conviction review unit. I've consulted with Denver. I've worked with... Um, the Fair and Just Prosecution, which also has an arm for conviction review units. Uh, we will collaborate with anybody that wants to talk with us um, and discuss different ways to, to make the unit work. Oh, that's great. That is great. Um, what, what kind of... I hear some background noise. What kind of cases do you uh, generally take? Um, we will take any, here in, in the 13th Circuit, we will take any felony conviction, uh, and we always prioritize the people that are incarcerated first. Um, however, we don't have a requirement that it has to be by a jury trial. So in other words, let's say somebody pled guilty, um, but they did it because they needed to get out of jail or they did it because of pressure, and really they were innocent, we will still review those cases. However, the cases have to be there, have to, there has to be a statement saying that the person didn't do it, that they're factually innocent. We don't review sentences. We don't review procedural issues. We don't review cases where they said, well, yeah, I did it, but the judge was mean to me and they gave me a <laughs> stiff sentence. We're looking for people that are truly factually innocent of the crime that they were convicted of. And those are the cases that we're concentrating on. Now, my, my next question, you you. Uh, beat me to it. I was going to ask you, what do you look for in a case? Can can you be can you be specific for our listeners and explain that to them? Uh, absolutely. Uh, when I get a petition in, uh, I look to see what they're saying. Um, I'm looking for some of the factors that go into the most common reasons that people are wrongfully convicted. So, for example, if they say, "Well, I falsely confessed because I was." being uh, pressured and, and it was an undue influence on me. I look for those kinds of things. I look for witnesses that might have been an alibi witness that never spoke to the jury, that never got to testify. I look for that. I look to see if there's evidence that can be tested or retested, especially in these older cases where DNA might not have been in existence, DNA was in existence, but the testing wasn't there to be done. Uh, I look for prosecutorial misconduct and police misconduct. Some of those are the most common uh, reasons that people are wrongfully convicted. So I'm looking to see if there's any claim that fits those, uh, any of those criteria. Misidentification is the last one. That's the, the fifth one. 
And, and then I look to see if there's any evidence that they're giving me that the jury didn't get to hear. What we won't do is second guess the jury. So let me give you an example. Person, uh, Joe was convicted of murder and five people testified that, yeah, we saw him with the gun and, and we saw him chase the victim and shoot him. And, and then there's some forensic evidence that points to the fact that Joe did it. And Joe simply writes to me and he says, well, those witnesses really weren't that good. And, and, and maybe, uh, maybe, you know, one of them wasn't quite telling the truth, but the jury got to hear it all. If the jury got to hear it all, then I'm not going to look to overturn a conviction like that. Mm-hmm. Where we really get into looking at overturning convictions is where evidence wasn't tested or people didn't get to testify or we find out that the person that did testify truly did lie about key components of their, you know, that led to the conviction. The things that the jury didn't get to know are the things I'm looking for. I see. That's very interesting. Um, now, can you explain your role and also, I am sure you don't work alone, um, and the roles of your staff and how how many staff um are assisting you in in this uh, unit? Uh, sure. Um, I have, uh, counting me, there are three full-time staff members. There's myself, my paralegal, and then a retired law enforcement officer that's a, that is duly sworn to be a law enforcement officer. He's my investigator. Uh, we then have a second support staff member that helps as our, you know, if our work is ebbing and flowing, that when we're busy, she's there to help as well. But I utilize law students um, a lot, probably more than any of my counterparts here in Florida. I have an excellent working relationship with the Stetson College of Law here in um, Gulfport, as well as uh, Western Michigan Cooley. They send me law students, and I really have developed a program to use them to help me with these reviews. So they're not full-time, obviously, but they're a wonderful resource to have. And, oh, that, and so that, that makes up our team. That's fantastic. I know from uh, experience, the Innocence Project of Florida, where I was on the board for six years, we use uh, law students from um, uh, the school, what is it, FSU in Tallahassee? Yes. Yeah. So that that what a wonderful um, experience it must be for these students to get involved Um in cases like this, I, I think they they really look at how um, a miscarriage of justice happens, and uh, maybe who knows? Maybe some of them will go into uh, working with innocence projects across the nation or conviction uh, review units. That would be fantastic. Now, how many requests do you get in a year's time for help? Um, in in 2019, we had 168, um, and in 2020, we have had right about 125. There's not, there have not been as many in 2020, and part of that is in 2019, I received a lot of requests for people that were not convicted in Hillsborough County, mm-hmm. and there's a judicial, I'm sorry, a jurisdictional requirement. I can't look at convictions that occurred over in Clearwater or 
up in Jacksonville or, or over in Tallahassee. I have, I'm constrained by Hillsborough County. And I think as the word has gotten out and people know what the criteria is, I'm not getting nearly as many requests that I have to outright say no to because they're not in my jurisdiction. So right now, like I said, I'm, I think we're right at about 125, 130, and we still have December to go. So when you have to turn a case away, let's um, say it is within your jurisdiction, what would be a reason you would say um, we can't handle your, your case? Yeah, well, one of the main, one of the most common reasons is they write to me, and they get, and they don't say that they're innocent. They don't give me any evidence to research, mm-hmm. and they basically just want to talk about their sentence that they were sentenced uh, harshly, or uh-huh. they've been reformed now that they're in prison, and they'd like for us to modify their sentence. That's not my role no. as a conviction review unit, and I would say that's by far the most common reason. Mm. Um, that I, that, I mean, that will get just about an immediate, I'm sorry, I can't help you, right. uh, um, a letter. And then I would say the second common reason is they basically say, I didn't do it. And then that's all they say. Mm-hmm. They don't tell me any facts of, of, to show that they're innocent. They don't tell me about witnesses I could go interview or information that they've learned. Um, I will look at the case just even though they just give me that bare bones, but it won't get, uh, it won't get an internal, I'm sorry, it won't get a full review if what I'm looking at appears that the conviction should stand. I I need, I need more than that. I need something to go on to look at. Sure. Now, once you say we will take your case, there is enough uh, information here um, and, and it's within your, jurisdiction how how long generally does it take to complete a case from start to finish uh sure um keeping in mind that most of the cases we're reviewing are um what i would call complicated criminal prosecutions they're murders they're robberies where people were killed uh they're serious child molestations or rape so there's a lot of material to go through um the case that i'll talk about in a little bit where there was an exoneration um, I had to read 3,000 pages worth of material before I could even start an external investigation. And so that, you know, that takes time. Um, and so uh, usually I can tell you that most of my investigations are complete with the full investigation, testing and interviews. I haven't went over the 14-month mark yet. Um, I, I may, because COVID has really slowed us down. Mm-hmm. with interviews um i can't go to the prisons and interview people i it, you know and so so we've gotten slowed down a little bit on some of the interviews so we may go past 14 months but we have a target that we get done everything we can within 16 months of receiving. oh that's really rapid fire that's terrific now you, yeah. you go ahead i'm I, sorry I, I was gonna say because compared to the innocence project mm-hmm. at least the florida innocence project it's an average of two to four years yes that I know, and lo- and longer, it can be yeah. longer. Yeah. Um, you mentioned um, interviewing the um, offender. Did you were you able to go into the prisons before this? Is that generally how that's done? And now it's is it done by phone? 
it is done now by phone, which is not mm-hmm. ideal because we can't yeah. make face to face and it's hard to swear people in uh, under oath, which I like to do. Um, prior to this, we did go in person. We would schedule it through the prison. Um, and this could have been a witness. This could have been a victim that's now in jail himself. It could be the defendant who, who has asked us to do the review. Uh, we've traveled all over the state, and I've actually even went to Virginia to interview a witness. Hmm. Is travel generally a part of your investigation? If I if I can find somebody that might have moved that I need to speak to, either I'm going to bring them to me or I'm going to go to them if I feel that that face to face is crucial. Hmm. Um, if I can, you know, now that we're using Zoom. Uh, for people that aren't in jail, Zoom has been a, a really great thing. But for people that are in jail, I, I can't do Zoom. The prison system has no way to do uh, Zoom connections. So they, well, let, let's say they, they won't do it. I don't know if they have a way or not, but they won't do it. Yeah, there, I know from experience, because I'm in touch with many people who are behind bars, they now um, have video chats that uh, so that they're kind of getting, uh, you know, modern <laughs> with the video chats because many, many prisons are still uh, forbidding any visits for, you know, family members. So right. this is kind of a substitute. Um, all right. Well, what we know based on data from the National Registry of Exonerations, there are presently approximately 2,700 exonerees in the United States since we began keeping records in uh, 1989. And there are many, many cases that will never get the attention they deserve. How can we prevent this injustice from happening so often? Well, I, I think I think it's there are several ways. And I think the conviction review units are a key component in this. And that is training. Uh, I always, whenever I talk to people about conviction review units, I always tell them I have a reactive part of my job and a proactive. The reactive part is me looking at somebody's conviction and seeing if it was a proper conviction or if they were wrongly convicted. That's my reactive piece. But there's a proactive piece, and that is developing policies to prevent the improper use of a jailhouse informant, uh, making sure that attorneys are following the Brady and Giglio requirements of disclosure and and implementing and and making sure those policies are followed through with and that there's training provided to them uh training these uh attorneys on how to recognize the potential for a false confession or a a cross-racial misidentification Teresa, i had a question to ask you um about the many many cases that um often uh, end up going by the wayside because there are not enough conviction uh, review units. There are not enough staff at innocence projects across the country. Um, and it's it's very, very sad uh, that these people may never get out. But how, in your, in your mind, how can we prevent this injustice from happening? Are, are there things we know? Are there factors that Uh, send someone who's innocent to prison that we should be looking out for? Uh, Absolutely. Um, One of the things I do when I talk about the conviction review unit is I remind people that I'm not just reacting uh, to people that have been wrongfully convicted and reviewing their cases. I'm also working on proactive steps. That includes training and education. For example, 
we now make it mandatory that all attorneys go through confirmation bias training. You will see confirmation, confirmation bias is a real problem. And, and we all do it as humans. It's natural for us to do it. And so we are doing a lot of training. We've got one coming up Friday morning uh, for new employees, new attorneys. But we also educate them on those common reasons that I mentioned earlier about what causes wrongful convictions, cross-racial misidentification, false confessions, um, uh, prosecutorial misconduct or police misconduct. We look at uh, junk science. Uh, for example, the case that uh, we just did an exoneration on relied heavily on bite mark evidence, which has now been found to be basically not reliable at all. Uh, and so we train on those things constantly. We not only train our attorneys, but we're, we're working on cross-training with law enforcement so that they understand what the pitfalls are as well. And hopefully that will help us prevent wrongful convictions to begin with. Right. Um, but you're, you're talking about right here, that needs to be happening across the nation, right? It, it, it absolutely does. And whether or not a prosecutor's office has a conviction review unit or not, they can still do the training and the, and the education and creating policies that will help prevent these common reasons for wrongful convictions. For example, in, where I came from in Indianapolis, we had developed and implemented a week-long training between prosecutors and homicide detectives so that we would train them together to make sure we avoided some of those pitfalls in how to interview uh, suspects and or witnesses, how to secure evidence, what to do with it. Um, and so we, we didn't have a conviction review unit, but we still were doing policies we were still doing training. So every prosecutor's office can develop this proactive piece, even if they don't have a formal conviction review unit. Mm, that's good. Um, we are almost out of time, but I wanted to ask you, you used a term that I'm familiar with, but maybe my listeners aren't. What is confirmation bias? Uh, sure. Uh, confirmation bias, the, the easiest way for me to explain it is that when you when you believe something, then you look for anything that will substantiate and support your belief instead of looking for things that prove you wrong. We don't like to be proven wrong. We don't like to be proven that we've made a mistake. So, for example, if out of the corner of your eye you thought you saw somebody uh, running down the wrong way of the street, and that's what you saw, and then you look over and then things don't look quite as clear, you will look for factors that will support your initial assessment was that the guy was running down the street the wrong way. Instead of trying to look for things that would disprove yourself. And, and that is a real problem because what happens are prosecutors and especially police officers and prosecutors to some extent, they believe they get the right guy. And then they don't look at the evidence that may prove they got the wrong guy. Instead, they look at the evidence that supports their initial assumption. Yeah, right. That's that's very, uh, very well put and uh, something that I think people may not be aware of. Well, we are just about out of time. Um, I know you have agreed to return uh, next week for uh, the third in the series of these podcasts about conviction review units. And next week, we'll hear more from you about the case of Robert Dubois, 
which is uh, quite a case. Um, I, I read quite a bit about it, and I'd like you to share it with our listening audience. No, so no. I, I welcome you uh, back next time, and we will hear more about that case. And uh, please join us for another episode of Pursuing Justice. And thank you so much for listening today. Thank you.